Hi everyone, you're listening to the Silvati's podcast. So this week on the podcast, I've got Ben Wybrow joining me. Now, I'm really excited to talk to Ben because essentially he does a job that I'm very interested in and very excited about. So Ben is a specialist pain physiotherapist and clinical communication skills facilitator. He's going to tell me a bit more about that. But what I really want to pick his brains about is about engaging with patients presenting with pain, what kind of challenges he encounters and how he engages his patients in a clinical setting. So thank you so much for joining me today, Ben. Oh, thank you, Sylvan, for speaking with me and having me come along. I'm uh, very grateful. I've listened to other ones of your podcast before, and I'm uh, proud to be added to the long list of people coming on. Thank you. And in fact, um, we've never formally met in person before, but the way I came across your work was from watching and listening to some of your talks that you did with clinical physio on pain. And for me, I'm always interested in this field because as an osteopath, as um, somebody who teaches psychology, it's so embedded in what we do. So the first time I listened to you speak, I was like, oh, this guy, he, he knows what he's doing. He knows what he's talking about. And then you did another talk with them, another webinar rather. And I was like, okay, this is a sign. I've got to get him on the podcast. Well, I'm, I'm very grateful you found it um, so in, interesting, and then I'm also glad that you find our exciting. We don't we um, find it hard sometimes to get people to actually come and work for pain services. Um, it has a bit of a reputation, as people can imagine, that you know there are these people out there with consistent pain who come with all sorts of flags and other bits and bobs that make them a bit more potentially challenging and difficult to manage. Uh, but the fact that you're excited and I'm hoping other people listen to this or graduating and coming through their careers are interested as well, because it's a very, for me at least, interesting and exciting field to work in as well. Absolutely. And I think there's such a thirst for this kind of, of, of knowledge and this kind of um, sort of dissemination of information, because there is there can be so little out there that is sort of validated and from a trustworthy source. And and less of a sort of myth kind of sort of background. And so that's what I'm hoping you'll be able to give us as well. You know, you work in the field, you work directly with patients and not just on a clinical level, but also as a, as a, as a, as a facilitator as well. And so I'm wondering, how did you get into this field? Because as an osteopath, I have a very different route of entry into what we do now. Um, so I'm interested in what led you to what you do now. So I graduated back in uh, 2014 now. And I, now I, as a student, hated MSK Physio. I'll start off by saying that. If you'd have told me now, or as a student, that I would be doing what I do now with MSK for a career, I would have told you where to go with that idea. I had thought of myself working in ITU and doing loads of suction and bagging all day long. That's where I pictured myself. And like every physio, when they qualify, they go into their rotations. And they put me on my first rotation at MSK. I think if they hadn't have put me there, my career and life would be very different. 
if I'm honest with you, because I wouldn't have chosen it. It would have been bottom of the list. And I always, this is why now I tell people always give it a go because once I graduated and did it, it was so much better and easier. Um, what I call band five life, because you get the nice neo A's and all the humoral fractures and post-op whatever, all the things that should be able to get better. Your job is just to make sure that they do. do. Um, and I really liked it and then went into an inpatient rotation and it was neuro on a stroke unit. And most physios, including myself, would consider neuro as the more, most fun of all the inpatient rotations. And I thought, if I, don't, if I prefer MSK over this, I'm going to prefer it over everything else. And so I thought, let's give it a go. And within two weeks, I, was, I knew that I want to be out. I want to be doing MSK stuff. And so about a year or two into my career, got a permanent MSK job and doing that ever since. And I was in going through that. And there was a point where I was going through it. I'm thinking, this is nice but I want a challenge. And as I was going along, you start to get the more interesting people, we say, come through with their uh, pains in various places and their beliefs and expectations that aren't as easy to manage as someone who's very on board. And most people I was working with would go, oh, I don't know, but I don't like this one. They kind of, the, that patient that some people might go, oh no, not this one again. And for some reason, I really liked them. And I can't tell you why or what it was. Maybe I just liked being the person that was more confident in dealing with them than everyone else. Um, I read, as I was going along, uh, Louis Gifford's Aches and Pains trilogy. Have you read them yourself? I've come across yeah. them. Yeah. And I think that combined with working through it, I was getting to a point where I was like, yeah, I actually prefer these people with persistent pain over the post-op whatevers or the neo way or what have you and then three years ago now my job came up in an actual pain service and applied and was lucky to get it and I've been there ever since um, it's very different being in a pain service to an MSK service because you're on the other side of what happens if the patient doesn't get better so normally in physio, if someone doesn't get better, in the UK at least, you then refer them to the specialist service, who then do all the examinations and tests and whatnot and scans. And then they'll go on to, if needed, uh, some form of surgery or uh, secondary care. And if they don't get better after that, then there's us. And we are at my little, uh, how can I say, exciting line to lure people in is we are the people that no one else can help um, and it's quite nice being that other side because you get to see what someone's been through you're not the you don't have the, the, the that kind of clock of if this person isn't getting better by some point I've got to kind of further them on you're there almost to try and we'll say be that person for them to try and turn the situation around um, and we have time and we have, you know, a whole team. It's not just me, it's OT and psychology and nursing and consultants, all of us together that makes actually trying to help 
um, this clientele easier for us. It's not just you on your own and more we can offer as well. Um, and I, for most of you now, from a clinical side of things, don't, could, I couldn't see myself doing anything else. And that definitely comes across in the content that you deliver, um, especially for this type of population, because often they can be seen as sort of the difficult ones or the ones that don't get better or the ones that everyone else has run out of ideas of what to do with them. And so I'm wondering, working, I mean, you mentioned already the type of people that you would work with. Um, I'm wondering then how, as a physiotherapist, when a person with persistent pain comes to you, how is that pain related management? How does that work? Now, I can only speak for the service I'm in because I can't say I've worked for every pain service in the country. But usually, at least in our service, they will speak to a consultant first, almost to make sure the relevant investigations and tests and whatnot have been done. Because what we don't want to do is obviously someone be diagnosed with a persistent pain diagnosis and then it turns out it's something else that's been missed and everything was a waste of time essentially the consultant will see and they can refer straight to any of us in mbt and then they might often speak to our nurses second but sometimes if they're quick enough they'll get to them first and i can't say that what i do in my if you were to say the what part you know, the questions of my subjective and the tests I do in my objective, if we call it that, is vastly different to what I do in MSK because you're talking about assumptions there. One of the assumptions, I think, when outside of people that work in the pain service is that patients don't come in, they're all in wheelchairs or can barely get about and have hardly any ability and lots of mental health problems, et cetera, et cetera. Which is, if I'm honest, rarely the case. I could probably count on one hand the amount of people that I see in a wheelchair each month. Maybe one or two, hardly any. Some come with sticks. Um, yes, we have a slightly higher amount of people with mental health diagnoses of some form or undiagnosed. But you can still talk to them. You can still you know, build rapport and trust and make a plan and they can engage. And it's certainly not the majority. Yes, there are some people where they've got other things going on too. But I think the fact that it comes with this stigma, so to speak, almost, well, I want to be, hopefully by doing this, and I'm sure it'll come up again and again, we need to kind of get rid of that. These are people who are simply, their situation just hasn't improved or got better yet. And it might be a long-term thing that might not get better, but they may also just, I'm going to say this right need more time and someone to explain things properly and to reassure them and maybe they needed to go through the hoops of the specialist service with the scans and the tests so they could feel that they'd been assessed and you know reassured properly and maybe they just need to get to know people longer or speak to the, you know, the member of the MTT they haven't spoken to so far because although you know people come into the, a pain service and they're given this expectation of this will be a life long-term condition most people we see we can improve their quality of life and how much their pain interferes with what they can do and i could show you various graphs and tables from our pain management programs and people we see individually that show that um, 
and sometimes the pain changes and it can get better. Um, we don't advertise that bit because it doesn't happen for everyone. Um, but I would say that, well, you know, I'm still asking all the usual history, axes, you know, medical history, the red flag questions, I, I, yeah, impressions, concerns, expectations, their goals, all those things you'd normally ask in MSK. The objective tests aren't much different. You're not doing a special test because, well, hopefully they haven't done by now and we've had all the investigations done unless things have changed. You might do a neuro if appropriate, but again, we had about five neuros by now and various scans. You're just looking to see how much they can move and what they can do. Hopefully like anyone would in any um, kind of musculoskeletal assessment. And then I'm also gonna say what I suggest treatment wise isn't drastically different to what I do from my MSK job before. I'm still trying to work with people to help them move more and engage more with their life and society. Yes, okay, we've had some additional training with motivational interviewing and acceptance commitment therapy and various other stuff like that. And I know it will take longer, but we have time. We get an hour for a new patient assessment. I can't think of an MSK service that does that. Unless yours does it. Not at all, not at all. Now would be such a luxury. But these are people with longer histories. They've, they've seen more people, there's more we need to get out of it. Um, you know, so and there is no max with a pain service. It's not like you only get to see them five times. Um, I have got people I've seen for 18 months, two years, and it's not every week. Sometimes it can often be with three, four, six months gaps in it. Um, when people do our pain management programs, we follow them for a month, six months, and a year afterwards to see how they're getting on. Because after us, not a lot else, apart from a GP or FCP to go back to if they need it. Um, so I've offered a lot there. <laughs> it's so illuminating for me. And I think because I work in the NHS system, I understand a lot of these caveats and a lot of the restrictions that some sort of um, services have. And then when they refer and things like that. And I'm wondering, so for many people who aren't so sort of aware of the sort of the behind the scenes sort of, of, of um, the behind the scenes sort of way things are triaged in a way, um, I'm wondering, so a person would typically, I'm just trying to map this out. So a person would typically present with some, some, some sort of musculoskeletal issue and typically they'd get referred by their GP or self-referral, I take it? Now, again, it's in the very across different patches, but usually let's say the person has, now you and I are talking about musculoskeletal, pain services will see pain for any reason not just musculoskeletal. So we see also people with abdominal pain, post-abdominal surgery. Um, I've seen CRPS, which kind of blurs the line between musculoskeletal and um, neuropathic pain. Um, Post-hepatic neuralgia, you know, things that are nowhere near musculoskeletal at all, um, but we'll still see them. What would usually happen is someone, let's say they've had their pain for a while, they've had some form of, I'm gonna say, decent rehab and in therapy input. It hasn't got better. They should then see some form of specialist, usually like a physio specialist or someone who 
sits in that halfway between uh, primary care and physiotherapy and then secondary care and um, hospitals or surgical stuff basically have the relevant investigations make sure all nothing's been missed everything's been assessed properly and then providing that there is no other target for whether it's neurosurgery orthopedics wherever then if the patient wants to they can then come to a pain service to help manage the situation and try and improve their quality of life. Um, the usual criteria is, as I say, the diagnos diagnosis needs to be done before generally someone comes to a pain service. Most fibromyalgia diagnosis is done by GPs these days. They should have had decent, so conservative care first, um, and there should be no further surgical or other invasive plans what you don't want is someone coming to a pain service and I'm here now, but if I wait for a year, I'll then get the surgery that will fix the problem because they're probably not really that interested in what they've got to say. Uh, I may not want to engage that much. Um, some services, I'm aware of other parts of the country, uh, if they've been through that process and time goes by, a GP can directly refer back into some community pain services. Um, I, I guess it depends what the situation is has it changed has it not um was there you know did they want did they not want to engage before and now they do um also we talked about mental health earlier you know is their mental health relatively under control um because just like in msk physio i could be wanting to treat someone's pain and try and help them get them moving and more but if their mental health is taking priority and they uh, overriding everything they need to get support from that side of things first which we have psychologists and we can direct and refer to um, psychological services um, but you know, if someone needs that address first get it addressed then come back um, you know, so as i say we're always the pain services will always be there we will never run out of patience um, and i think when it's the right time for someone then we take them on and we help them as much as we can I'm making sense with that. I, I said there was kind of two different ways. The classic way you have to go, you know, have your conservative and investigations and then on this to us or through kind of secondary care first, if they are to have some form of surgery or they've had that time goes by and then GP can refer to some community pain services. Mm. Yeah, it does. And you talked about mental health earlier. What kind of prevalence would people presenting to a pain service come with some kind of mental health difficulty or prior diagnosis of a mental health difficulty, for example? I don't have stats on me, um, but to give you some examples, uh, people diagnosed with fibromyalgia have a much uh, higher percentage of the history of abuse compared to those who are not diagnosed with fibromyalgia. Um, there are higher levels of depression, anxiety, stress, and those with persistent pain compared to those without. Now, what comes first? And does the pain drive the mental health side of things? Does the mental health drive the, it's a chicken and egg scenario? And then I would say, and again, I don't know the exact numbers, but I would say just from experience that we would see a higher number of people with bipolar disorder, PTSD, um, you know, are strong, greater levels of depression, anxiety, um, compared to general masculine care. 
that doesn't mean you can't engage them. That doesn't mean you can't help. Um, it just means you have to be aware that it's more prevalent. And that's why we're at the MDT, because we have psychology to um, guide us when we're trying to help this person, but they're also there if we need their help. And we have quite a lot of other support outside of our trust for psychological well-being and the mental health services. Yeah, and you talked about psychology, and I guess that's always going to be my bias, having uh, a direct sort of background in psychology and now lecturing in psychology and working in psychological services now. It's always going to be sort of what I fall back on. And to me, what the pain service almost represents is this, this bridge between sort of the psychology of the mental health and the physical health. And it's one of the very few places that I've seen that is able to amalgamate both in order to help the individual make sense of their experience. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And there is, you know, as a physio in a pain service, you are, I was talking about the what, it might be similar, but the how, how I'm doing it is much more, the fancy term is psychologically informed practice. Um, but I'm using those tools from those, you know, CBT or ACT or motivation interviewing, whatever. Um, and it's much more applied. And on our programs, they are psychology led. Um, I think it's just about, you know, no one's expecting you in being a physio and a pain service to play psychologist. You know, I think that's another misconception. It's like, you're, you know, you're going to be sitting there getting them to open up all about their life of what's gone on, you know, previously with mental health side of things, if it's abuse or trauma or, you know, other problems they've suffered. But I think it's more just about being aware and knowing where to direct what you can do and what you can't do and what needs to take priority. Um, and I, I think that having that psychological support, and I guess also thinking back to your first question about why I really got into psychology after I graduated. And I don't think most physios go into physio to do psychology. <laughs> they go into the physio to do, you know, what the guy running on the football pitch with the sponge, or, um, you know, getting whoever back to fitness to do their sport or whatever it is. Um, I'm being I'm making lots of assumptions there. But I think having that interest as well and what makes people tick, you know, how can I support this person, not just with their, you know, getting them moving more, but engaging more with life and society again, managing their emotions. Um, I think if you have the interest um, and the support from the team around you, it makes it a lot easier. And that's definitely something that I am trying to sort of implement when I teach now. Mm. Um, especially because a lot of osteopaths, um, at least where I studied, we did have a psychology sort of module, and there was a curriculum, and it wasn't part of the core curriculum, but um, I obviously had that interest having coming, coming from a psychological background, and now when I'm teaching, it's always trying to embed why it's important, or why when you're talking to people and you meant you really hit the nail on the head and I was like okay make sure you ask him about that it's the why that I'm interested in and so I'm going to pick your brains on the why then so I'm um, the how rather so with regard with regards to sort of uh, pain management sort of um patients that come through how are you managing that how are you managing to sort of um 
you know, deliver empathy and, you know, deliver sort of engage with them and build rapport and things like that. Because those are things that I often lecture about, but I feel like if they heard it from somebody else, they might take it more seriously. I can't remember in my physio degree being taught how to build rapport or trust or relationships with anyone. I can remember being taught what to ask and what to, you know, what to do, but no one teaches me how to do it. That makes sense. Because, and people remember, well, patients won't remember what you do or what you said, they'll remember how you made them feel. That's a quote that's been said many times. Um, you need to be interested in people, first of all. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why the job is um, more appealing and fun for me, because these are people that have had a lot of input and experience and got stories to tell. And I think that's the key you know, first thing as to building trust and rapport with someone is you to be interested in them. If you're going into work every day and going, oh, no, not these people, not this again, then you're not going to do as well or gain as much trust or rapport. Um, there are times when I go through my day, I think, oh, what I would do for a post-humoral fracture right now. Um, <laughs> but again, I said earlier, they're easy, they're going to get better. They're not the challenge. The fun people are the ones that don't want to be there, that don't think physio could help, that don't agree with their diagnosis. And they've got, you know, more flags than the UN. And they are the ones that I really like because it's the person you're treating. You're not treating a a knee or a sore back or you know, post whiplash, whatever. You're trying to engage with this person in front of you. And so I said about being interested in them and we're lucky in our job because our subject of questioning, yeah, you have your history and your ags and needles and your whatnot, but then you get to the bit where you ask, well, what do you do for a job? What are your hobbies and interests? Who's at home with you? Which shows you're interested. Um, and that's a nice, easy way to kind of get in and build some rapport and trust that we've all hopefully been taught or know already. But you were saying about the how, and I think you can ask the questions and I would like to hope that most people you know, watching or listening to this will know that number one rule, they should be listening to the person in front of them and not interrupting. Um, in the medical student teaching, we call, they call it the golden minute of allowing someone to tell their story. And I'll be honest and say, most people we see go on for a lot longer than a minute um, but that's okay and they will appreciate you for not butting in because they would probably been butted in and stopped and i'm i've seen it i'm sure you and many people have seen it many times where you've been shadowing someone and the person's going along and emptying their heart out and then they go oh yeah but um, can i move on to and it stops in their tracks and if you can be that person to let someone tell their story and tell and they've never had it before, you will probably gain more than anything else you do that session. And they will trust and be likeness towards you more than anyone else they've seen. I hope I like to think that's obvious. Um. <laughs> See, it, but, it, it sounds obvious enough, but I don't know if it always is in practice. Yeah. I think this is one of those things of, you know, the social media bubble where you surround, you know, you're following people who think the same thing as you, and you think, oh well, we all think the same thing. Surely everyone else thinks the same thing too. Um, 
And with this is one of the benefits of working in a we have an open curtain area so it's all curtains rather than walls i used to work in a, in a place where it's all individual rooms which has its benefits but when you're in a curtained area you can hear other people um, and i will say that over time whether it's just influence of change with social media and evidence that's coming through and all the cpd that's available now that at least from a physio perspective that i hear people most patients are given the chance to tell their story. I get, I get, I see uh, mixed experiences with other professions, I'm being honest. Um, and that may simply be to time, maybe to their experience, or what they've been taught this, you know, you don't, you don't know why someone does something. Yeah, that's what we have to do as part of our history taking, we have to find out why is this person in this situation. Um, so, you know, the listening is the key. I tell people, if you forget everything else and just listen to that person in front of you and let them talk and don't interrupt them, you've already gone in the right direction, regardless of how you, you know, what your diagnosis is and what your treatment suggestion is. Um, there is more to it, though, because, you know, I can remember going onto Twitter and seeing tweets and someone saying, I listened to the patient today for one minute and they were very grateful. Yeah, that's great. But that's like we just said earlier, should be obvious in 2022, in theory. Um, and people, sometimes I hear, I say, you know, you said about empathy there. I said, how, I say, how did you build the empathy and trust for that person? And you say, well, I listened. I didn't interrupt them. Yeah. What else? Well, I listened. Right. right. <laughs> great. That's a good start. That's a great start. But there's a much more to building empathy and trust than just listening to someone. Listening shows you've given them the chance and that you're interested and you care what they've got to say. But there's a difference between that and what empathy truly is. People assume empathy is like sympathy, where in sympathy, I feel sorry for you. I'm feeling you know, upset because you're what you've been through. But that's not empathy. Empathy is where someone feels that you understand what they've been through. Now, you listening to someone, I could, you could tell me your story now and I could listen. And you may feel that I care and I'm interested. And I haven't interrupted you. And, then, mm -hmm, and do the usual nods and eye contact as we go along. Have I shown you that I understand what you've gone through? What do you think? Hmm. It depends. It's not, yeah, it's not so clear. No. So, there, I don't know who's saying it's three steps to empathy. Listen, obviously, number, key number one. Next thing we tell our students all the time is in summarize. So, you should summarize back to someone what you've said to show that you've heard. Because you can listen, but then someone might then go, hmm. Okay, so now onto this. Blah, 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 blah. You're completely bypassing what they've potentially opened up to you about that they may have not told anyone before. So summarize back to what so you showed you what you've heard. That shows that you've listened and you've heard it. But do you again is do you still understand? Am I showing that I understand? So the third step, which is the often missed bit, 
what we call a label. Um, I recommend people go and read a book that's come out a few years ago now called Never Split the Difference. It's about negotiation. Um, it's by an ex-FBI negotiator called Chris Voss, and it's a very good book, and um, I know other uh, clinicians have read it as well. The third step is the label that comes from this, where you would say something like, it seems like, it looks like, or it sounds like. I'm going for a tough time moment. It, sound, it looks like you're really struggling with this. It seems like this has taken over your life, and you're not enjoying what you used to enjoy before. And hopefully they'll say, you're right, or that's right, or yes, or some form of affirmation. Because that's where you're showing, I've heard what you've had to say. I've relayed back to you that I've listened. I'm understanding the ex what you are experiencing and what you're going through. I think that that's the bit that's missed. We're, you know, Most of us are coming, hopefully, more confident with listening. Most people in our practice can summarize. And it's that bit at the end where the patient can then feel, yeah, you have heard me and you understand what I'm going through. Am I making sense, Ilvan? Totally. And this is so aligning with what I try to do, but I'm very constrained to do is at the same time. Um, it's sort of just ringing true for a lot of things that I'm either thinking or saying. So it's, it's great to be able to hear this from someone else. I should also add that it doesn't just have to be an it sounds, it seems, or it's, it looks. That you can also say something like, that must be very tough, or that that sounds like it's you know, really affecting your work, or home life, or something like that. Um, the key thing really is that I'm not saying I, because if I say I with it, I'm taking ownership of it. When it's not my emotion, it's not my experience, it's your experience. Um, and also if I am wrong, say I've said it sounds like it's really affecting your work and you go no no it's all right it's it's actually my you know, sporting interests or my ability to do the washing or whatever it is then it's less of an argument because I've not said I about it it's not my label it's not me saying, although I've said it it's you know, I've taken less ownership of it so that's why I always say start with an it or that works fine too um it's easier for them to say no it's wrong usually if you've listened and summarized right you then get the label right hopefully provided you've actually been listening um, and then as i say that just it sounds it seems or it looks and you, usually the sounds are something you hear looks something you see and seems is something either together or in between um, and it takes five seconds to say and it make someone go yeah and now I've, i not only have you shown me you understand me but i like you more because you understand what i'm going through and i'll trust you more because you've had to know what i'm going through you're interested in what i've got to say and hopefully as a result of that they're they're more open to what we've got to say and more hopefully believing that we can help because that's really you know those two things how much they like us and how much they believe we can help are really the big two drivers um you could, have, you could have the best assessment skills in the world. You could have the most specific and detailed rehab plan in the world. But if they don't like you, or they don't think you can help, yeah, you're not going anywhere. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Ye
absolutely agree with that. So I can be in consultations and, you know, you're talking to someone and then someone next door in the curtain will say something and you go, ooh, what's going on here? Because the <laughs> one in front of you, especially if it's a follow-up with someone who's going in the right direction, you're like, yeah, good, carry on. And then someone's like, well, they're, they're telling about the, you know, positive called aquina questions or um, they're telling some story about, you know, their career as a, I don't know, ice hockey goalie or something very exciting. Mm -hmm. Ooh, this is interesting. Or it's the opposite where someone's having an absolute nightmare. <laughs> that would probably be me. <laughs> the amount of times it's, it's, and it's interesting because the amount of times I've been in a situation where in most departments it's curtained off. Um, where I forget people can hear everything you're saying and vice versa. And so there are times where I've, in order to build rapport with a patient, I've noticed something they're wearing, like a concert, um, a concert t-shirt, for example, I remember one patient wearing, and it was on pink, and I just literally had a conversation about pink, the music artist, for about 20 minutes whilst treating, and realized after I'd finished, somebody asked, well, another physiotherapist or physiotherapist sort of sitting outside was like, you know a lot about pink. And I'm like, <laughs> and, and you forget these kinds of things, but conversely it happens in a good way as well, where you pick up on skills or phrases that other people might use and you think, oh, that's a really nice way of saying that. Um, you talked about, you talked a lot about the how. I'm wondering then, when you engage with patients, so when you feel that they're ready to engage with you, because I feel like that's a skill that can sometimes be very sort of difficult to ascertain. So how do you work it out? Is that, is that your question? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so when, yeah, as a standard for every assessment I do, I, I don't know what, is being taught in things across the country. But I think I hope it's standard for most uh, physio assessments is you ask the ICE questions. You've heard of the ICE questions, Sylvan? That's not familiar in my training, no. Okay. So the ICE questions, uh, they are drilled into the medical students. So ICE stands for impressions. This is all the patients. Patients' impressions. So what do they think is the problem and what's going on? Uh, and also, subtly with that, what do they think will help? C stands for concern. So what is their biggest concern? It may not be what they're seeing you for, maybe something else. Um, and often missed question with that is what other concerns do you have? Because if you can ask, say someone, what's your biggest concern with, with this? And then they say, they may tell you an answer that they feel you want to hear or that they should say, when actually their biggest concern may be something else different. It might not be to do with the pain, it might be to do with their ability to work or getting, you know, needing help with the financial side of things or uh, a different medical problem. Then, you know, I'm actually really concerned about this pain in my foot. That's not making any sense. And it's forming this weird circle and it's a bit bumpy. I'm much more concerned about that than my back pain, for example. The E is expectations. So to answer your question, you'd ask E as, what did you want to expect out of me and our service moving forwards? Um, so hopefully they'll tell you, you know, 
A lot of people say, I'm not sure, I don't know. Some people say, I oh, just like some exercise or advice on how to move forwards. Sometimes we'll hear help. And sometimes we'll hear, I don't expect anything of you. I don't think you can help. Those are the best ones. Those are the ones that you kind of get to try and help. They need a bit of um, time and effort to really buy them in. I, you know, I, it's nice seeing 70-year-old John with his knee away and he wants to avoid a knee replacement for as long as possible, engage with his exercise and get his leg as strong as possible. And that's great, but that's also quite easy. You know, I can, it's just a matter of making sure he can do what you're going to suggest and he can go along with it. You don't have to make much effort, then he's going to do it. But 50-year-old Tanya, let's say, with her persistent neck pain, who's had, you know, hours of assessments from various specialists and therapists and paid a lot of money privately on top of any you know, NHS care she might have had and been through the mill of manual therapy and all talks of exercises and classes and maybe she had injections and stuff. She might come in there and say, I don't know why I'm here. I've had physio already. You can't help. Among my this sticks in my memory. I saw a chap, I was about two years into my career, and he'd come in and I knew he'd seen a few of my colleagues previously. He's about, let's say, 30-ish. Uh, and he walks in and sits down and says, look, you look quite young, probably not much experience, probably can't help. And you know, what do you say to that? I mean, he told me his expectations. We knew where we were starting from, that's good. Um, and to this, I think how so they often tell you what you know whether they're going to be able to engage um, or what they think of you. Hopefully, if you built up the trust and rapport right early on, you'll get an honest answer. There is the risk that you might get the answer of, oh yeah, I'd just like some exercises and some advice of what to do, because they feel that they should say that. Um, and that's the answer they should give. But they may be feeling otherwise, may think, I don't really think this is a good idea, or they may need help in psychology or OT um, or other areas. Um, but the best way for most is just to ask. People will be honest, hopefully, most of the time. Um, and let's say the other option is you can go for all that, you can do your assessment, you can make whatever suggestions you do for your treatment. And at the end of that, if you've worked with them, and you say, what do you think about, we'll say exercise in this case, exercise for managing your pain? They'll say, well, I'm not sure, I've tried this, I've tried that. And you build up a little plan that they come up with, which is key for engagement. Um, at the end, you might say, what will stop you doing this? What's going to get in the way? And we often think of that as like physical things, like time and environment and work and having the equipment, etc. We were talking about psychology earlier. I say, okay, are there any thoughts that might stop you or feelings that might stop you? Um, and you know, they may say, mm, I'm not sure. I haven't tried it yet. Or no, I should be okay. Or they may say, yeah, I may feel that it might make it worse or it's not going to help. 
or and we've all seen those people who are doing exercises for their OA wherever and they're doing it just because they know that they've got to do this first before they then go and get the joint replaced and they're just doing it to take a box and we've all seen those people who will come in and say I did all my exercises I did them every day 10 times you know, however much it is I'm the same and they may because they either you haven't asked properly or they just haven't told you that they don't think you're the solution they think that the surgeon's a solution or a different medication or something is a solution and you're just there to kind of tick the box and go along so hopefully if you build up your trust and rapport right you'll know either during your subjective or you're giving them every opportunity you can after you've made your plan to kind of say actually mm, mm, mm. and if by that point they're not putting up barriers to saying yeah i should do this then they're committing themselves to saying yeah i'm going to do this now they're not what they're not committing them to saying is i'm committing i'm going to do this and it's going to help i believe it's going to help you may still be getting a a fake yes the, yeah yeah okay i'll do that yeah 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 yeah, yeah I'll come on I'll, that's fine they just want to get out of the room and we've all been there where someone's giving you something and we will sign up for this will you sign this yeah i'll take it home and read it you go and fill it and go. um but at least if you've given them every opportunity to say put up as many to say no and given those many opportunities to put up as many barriers and you get to that point where they're then saying i will do this then if someone says, I'm going to do this, then you're more likely to do it because of the result. Um, and actually, the more people they can say, I'm going to do this too, the better, because you're committing yourself to more people. Um, the best form of commitment is not just for someone to say to their clinician, I'm going to do this, but then say, right, I'm going to do this, I'm going to write it down, I'm going to take a photo, I'm going to put it on my social media and tell my tens, hundreds, thousands of people that I'm friends with, that I'm going to do this. And then they video themselves doing little updates every day. And the more commitment someone says they're going to do, the more they're going to do it, hopefully as a result. Does it mean they're going to get better necessarily? Does it mean they believe it's going to help? That's a different question. It's a different situation. But at least that for, to answer your question for engagement, um, you want, you're trying to say, ask, give them as many options to the barriers possible and then commit to it essentially. And so what are some of the more challenging type of personalities that you might have come across? So I guess when it comes to challenging personalities, that one end would be the kind of the depressed, hopeless, fearful of movement patient who you know is scared and afraid. You know, you know. And they are you've got to meet every, and whoever it is you've got to meet them where they're at and i'm not just talking about for my physical ability you know meeting setting a rehab program exercise panel lifestyle plan whatever you want to call it that is at their level but also from an emotionally meeting them where they're at so if someone's coming in quite upset and depressed i'm not gonna be like hi nice to meet you let's put a smile on your face go yeah because I'm not meeting them where they're at emotionally. I need to meet that person with this kind of voice and quiet and calm so that they feel I'm at their level. We like people who are like us, no matter how I think. So if I'm 
using a tone and words that are at their level and volume and pitch, they're going to feel that I'm at their level. They're more likely to trust me or that before feel they can talk to me. But we as clinicians, we, we can kind of handle these people okay because we want to be the knight in shining armor to kind of build them back up, help them get back to where they're before. They're okay. We can deal with upset, providing it's, I'm talking about the average clinician here, not too distraught, not too depressed. But again, where's that? Someone's what's too depressed or what's too upset? Someone's, you know, what is up to the individual, what they can manage. What's harder is the angry and frustrated. And that person who doesn't want to be there and, and you know, feels let down by their service that they're not better yet and they haven't had their surgery or injection or whatever it is. And they should have been better six months ago, but they're not. And all they keep getting is medicines and they're using this tone all the time. It's very firm. Looking you in the eye, eye all the time, etc. That they're not saying anything at you that's making you know, they're not threatening you at all, but making you feel a bit like, oh, no. is this person having a go at me? Even though I haven't done anything to upset them, they're, how they're coming across is quite scary. So I said about the kind of the, the vocal mirroring of the person who's depressed, but. This is the one time where this is not a good idea to vocal mirror someone because classic anger management, if someone's angry at you, you don't get angrier or louder than them because all it then turns into is a shouting contest. This is where those phrases of it sounds, it looks, it seems like will really pay to your benefit. You're still gonna be firm to a degree. You're still gonna be with them, showing that you're taking them seriously. And if you talk too quiet, down here they might not take you that seriously they might just feel they can talk over you all the time but using a firm kind of you know it seems like this is really important to you it looks like this is really frustrating it sounds like you're not happy with what's been going on so again you've listened to what they've got to say and you know i would say for most people they can't be angry forever i've yet to meet that person <laughs> eventually anyone will fizzle down and if you've listened to them and given them that chance to everything out, but again, they haven't had that chance to before, they may then kind of harm as a result, or at least feel that like a balloon and kind of able to come down to your level. And you can summarize back what you've heard. And again, that label shows you've heard and understood what they're going through. And they feel that you now know where they're at. You've built some trust in your core early on. You're not saying I agree. I should be clear with the empathy stuff. You know, just saying it sounds like this or it looks like that. You're not saying you're right or I agree that what you had was a, you know, you are, you've had a terrible experience, you've not got the care you deserve, blah, 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 blah. All you're saying is, I hear you, I understand what you've been through. And so, from that, you then ideally you do something called match pace lead, where you take that emotional firm and yeah, yeah, and you can kind of gradually soften your language a bit until you can get them back down to that kind of conversational tone where they're able to talk like you and I are now. Um, you know, the worst thing you can say is calm down. When does you know, when does the the phrase calm down ever worked for someone who's angry? Um, all it does is the opposite, essentially. Um, even though I do it with our three-year-old all the time. <laughs> you can't negotiate with children. <laughs> no, that's why I don't work with kids. 
<laughs> uh, I, I, we have peds in the um the same kind of block as us and uh i say that you deal with the happy children i'll deal with the grumpy adults and uh, it's just no but even we had you know we have even physios that deal with um, p children in persistent pain um, teenagers yeah i could i could go for that but below as you say sometimes uh, i don't fancy my chances against uh, an upset six-year-old no they will win <laughs> every time yeah yeah so yes those it can be challenging but again it's those key skills just to listen summarize the empathy statement and then you know all those other things you talked about the ice questions showing that you care and you're interested and they're not going to walk away and go ah oh, yes he heard me he or she they heard me they understand what i've gone through i will immediately agree with them and they are my savior they go, oh, that was better than the last experiences i'll give this a go what they suggested well or what we came up with and then hopefully every time you see them it depends on life but it gets it's less angry it's less difficult of a conversation mm. Mm. and to literally take the words out of your mouth then so to me it sounds like what you're trying to do is is work on behavior change yeah. yeah and so i'm wondering then are there any particular models of behavior change for example that you can talk to me about so yeah i mean the generic behavior change one that most people have taught me teach do it in the clinical school um, teaching with the medical students is motivational interview and it's you know, there's an acronym called AWS, and you have lots of open questions and reflecting and affirmations and, and hopefully to make a plan themselves. Um, I am not going to sit here and say I have this model of behaviour change that has never been thought of before because I everyone's got you know in psychology world you have your CBT and your ACT and it all kind of blurs no one just you know they've all got their positives and negatives and i there isn't one that outshines another or is good or just does everything on its own and i think what's you know the principles are more that matter than the you know exact models of step by step do this 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 so if, as we said earlier if someone likes you the more likely to do what you're going to suggest if they believe from what you're suggesting that it's going to help and you've got to tell them that it's going to help and have that discussion with them, then they're more likely to do it. Because people need a what's in it for me, essentially, or with them. We only do things if there's something in it for us. And that isn't just gaining, but we're also as humans more likely to do something if more likely to lose as well. You may have heard of loss aversion. So we as humans are more likely to do something if we're likely to lose compared to gain. We're more fearful of losing compared to gaining. Um, if I was to give you a bet and say, here's a bet, 50-50 chance, spin of a coin, heads, I give you 10 pounds, tails, I take 10 pounds. Is it worth it? Do you want to take it? Oh, 
I used to be a gambling man before. Um, Hopefully a responsible gambling man. <laughs> <laughs> this is a very long time ago. Um, I would probably say no, because I don't want to lose the 10 pounds. Exactly, because we are more, this is the thing with behavior change. If someone's got a little routine going that is it okay or good that, you know, they're doing, you know, and if you suggest something, but there's only marginal gains in it, then they're less likely to interest in or do it because what they get, they might lose the thing that they are doing and their way of life and their routine and the, and they enjoy this thing. And I was reading something the other day. It says, um, it's from the book, The Catalyst by Jonah Berger. And it said, it needs to be 2.6 times greater in value for us to take it compared to the loss. That makes sense. So I would need to offer you 26 pounds to gain compared to 10 pounds to lose. For, most, for the average person to take then take that bet. Um, and we have some data, not for physio, but for surgery. And we can always put this in the show notes uh, or in, at the end or in, when you put it on the podcast. Um, there's a study in, uh, I can't quote the author, but again, we can put it in. And when people with shoulder pain, when they were going to see a consultant, before they went in, they were given a little card. And I think they all had rotator cuff tears or some form of rotator cuff issue. I think on their card, it said, um, post-surgery, something like 75% of rotator cuff tears, repairs, don't tear, or they remain as they are. And then the other half were given a piece of paper that said, post-rotator cuff repair, 25% of people had a retour after their surgery. Interestingly, those that were given the loss, so the 25% tear, less of them pick surgery compared to the ones that um, at the 75% didn't tear. And even though if you work it out in your head, it's the same data, right? It's the same information, but the way it was spun, because it was a loss, they're less likely to pick that option. Um, so it's again, how you're framing things, now, this is, People often hear the you know, the lose, move it or lose it. You know, the if you don't do this, you'll end up like this. Um, it can be effective as a way of fear, but fear is not, you know, it's in the short term okay to get people doing things, but in the long term, it's not a long term strategy for keeping people engaged with, you know, lifestyle and behavior change. They need to like it and enjoy doing it, have purpose of it. Um, and so, whatever you're offering, um, really needs to offer them a lot more than what they may potentially lose. And again, whenever you're suggesting, try not to make it sound like a loss compared to a gain. That make, am I making sense? Absolutely. And it's interesting because it's it's a real plain language. And that's something that definitely came across when I spoke to Nick Hanna, for example. Mm. It was, you know, the language that we choose, the way we choose to communicate certain things is how it it becomes perceived by somebody else and how we can directly influence that or present it in a way that's more palatable, more optimistic, that really changes the perception for someone who's coming in with this 
persistent or chronic sort of condition or pain, for example. And so the way you use language in that sense makes complete sense. Absolutely. We are, yeah, I, I mean, I can't remember even post-qualifying, you, know, you couldn't today, as we're talking, go on, I don't think you could, go online and find it in this country at least, find a course for healthcare clinicians about how not, you know, we all know what to say. We all have our spiel and our words and our questions we ask, but the how to use your tone of voice, how to say things in a certain way that can influence what someone decides. How can you use your body language, for example, to build rapport and trust? We haven't said about that at all. Um, and I think it's a missing area that obviously I'm very keen to promote more. And, we say in the medical, we teach the students in the medical schools. Um, I wish there was more, which I'm, I'm trying to do more of, for people once you qualify. Because I think it's only really when you qualify and you've been in the job for a little while that you think, oh yeah, this is actually really important. This is really what makes the difference for these people. And it's like, oh, what, so what's there? And it's, it's not a lot. There's Nick Hannah's communicate course, you said. Um, maybe a few others. We have some postgraduate things for like GPs and um, uh, oncology consultants and stuff like that for palliative services. And I know there's some explained pain things and it, these communication stuff works its way into certain CPD courses. But we were talking about how earlier, um, you know, I can't think of any course or anything I've heard from anyone about vocal mirroring, for example, and how I can use my tone of voice to make you feel that I'm on your side, even though you know, you might be saying very different words, or how I can use my body to feel that you to feel that we're on the same side. And um, all that kind of stuff, that's the that's the how essentially. It's that that 75, whatever percentage it is that impacts communication compared to the 20 or 25% that of what we say. You know, people, the big complaint is in communication, it's not what you said, it's how you said it, right? We taught what to say, but how, the tone you use and you know, the way you go about it, I think is really the key. Um, you know, and it, not just for behavior change. I mean, there's that quote from Laura Mosley, 10 years ago now it says physios aren't in the business of uh, exercise or physio they're in the business of behavior change i'd now take that a step further and say we're not really yes we're in the business of behavior change but what we're really in the business of is the business of belief change mm. what i mean by that is someone can change their behavior we said earlier about that person with knee osteoarthritis who does their exercises, but it's just ticking the box to then get to the surgeon because they believe that's the way, even though you and I know there's tons of data that shows that a good amount of physio and rehab can help lots of people with neuroarthritis and prevent needing surgeries and other invasive treatments. And it's using all those skills to change that belief that we can help. A lot, hopefully a lot of the time, you know, if someone's coming in believing physio can help in your solution, great, that's easy. They're already bought in. And there's a lot of people that are in the middle that with a bit of 
addressing first giving them the information and the facts, but also the emotional buy-in. So not just saying, if you do this, this will help do these, da -da -da -da, here's why, but saying, you know, hopefully we can get you back to your sport and um, you know, working easier, interfere less with this and that. You know, building that trust and report at the same time, that's the, the emotional side to buy into it as well. People need facts and information, but they also need to feel supported and that working towards their goals and their visions. And it's kind of on a scale. And if you can tip the scale, wherever it is the person, that's another skill about knowing, you know, some people are very logic, some people are very emotional, or somewhere in the middle. And setting and working with them and setting your plan around that, hopefully you can help them believe or at least get them going that they believe they can, or you can help them and improve their quality of life. And I think that's, that's our future, essentially. That's where we need to be going. What can we do to help someone buy in and believe that physio is going to help? Yes, we can give them facts, but facts don't change feelings. There's a lot of, you've heard the, the phrase, um, facts don't care about your feelings. Well, also feelings don't care about facts. We've all been there with the person who's had the scan that says, you know, degenerative changes at L4-5. It's normal stuff for you and I. You and I would see that lumbar spine MRI and go, oh, fine for 52, that looks grand. But that person's then going, oh my God, I've got this degeneration. And I know you've discussed it with other people before. And we, you know, it's nice to get out these graphs that say, look, Sally, these are all the other 50-year-olds in your age group. And 50 or 60% of them had this degeneration as well, but they didn't know about it, blah, 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 blah. Which is nice. But she also need, she may also need the emotional side of it. I mean, saying, because of that, you know, this is normal for your age. We could hopefully get you back to your netball, swimming, you know, enjoying life more with your children. Um, a phrase I like to use a lot of is, if I get to your age and my scan looks like that, I'll be very happy. Because I'm putting emotional kind of personal spin on it. I'm not just saying these thousand people in your age group who also had this didn't have any problems, but look at you, you have pain. So it's, you know, considering both sides of things and to change that belief. And sometimes people need to go away and need to do what we, well, you know, hopefully engage with what they come up with working with us. Not, we're not doing what we suggest. People need to come up with the idea themselves. We're just there to help facilitate that and then engage with that and then maybe have the experience of, okay, yeah, this is quite nice. I'm enjoying this. Maybe this will help. Yeah. But people won't change immediately because you don't like to lose face, right? We've all been in arguments and we know the person is right, but you don't want to go, yeah, you're right because you lose your face no one ever wins an argument um and i wouldn't expect any patient in front of me to turn around and go you know what now that you've given me that information and that graph i completely changed my opinion and you are always right from now on and i would you know i completely that's not how humans work people need time to go away and to think about it and then come back and then go well i thought about this i think this but what about this da, 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 da. um I think if we can, you know, work with that and the beliefs, not just the behavior, um, 
then I think over time, and this isn't just for physio, it should be clear, this is for healthcare in general, then we'll be making hopefully greater strides towards helping these people. And that's what I really appreciate about the work that you do in sort of the field that you're in, in the persistent sort of pain sort of field you're in. So you're actively allowing people to have that time to monitor not just that change in behavior, but monitor that change in belief system as well, because from the sounds of it, that's what you're, the underlying thing of what you're trying to work with. And I think at least from what I've seen, you, you know, you're one of the very few people who are actively going into universities, medical establishments, because I know that you do deliver a series of lectures to medical professionals about this stuff. And I think, I mean, having been in various hospitals for various different reasons, with various different family members, you know, varying from very insignificant to very life-threatening, I can appreciate how that kind of training makes a world of difference for the patient, but also the patient's family, and how that information is conveyed and how it's received because it can go very well and it can go very badly as well. Uh, yes, you could, you could say the same words, but how you say it could drastically change the outcome and how someone feels about it. I could say to you, let's say we've gone through our consultation, we've done the assessment, we've made a plan, all that stuff. And I say, Sylvan, right, Sylvan, any questions? How do you feel when you say it? No, exactly. Mm -hmm. But I could say, go for all that, make the plan. So I say, Sylvan, any questions? See, that's a lot more inviting. Yeah. Or you can, I didn't quite do it. I should, I should have been more careful. It's inflected my voice and go, any questions? Because if you go up, people want to answer it. If I go down, you know, any questions, you know, then it's, it's almost like a full stop. Essentially, it's, a, it's an easy way if you, if you want to kind of play with your time in an appointment in a consultation um then usually when someone goes down and ends that's you're bringing that point to a stop and you're not wanting someone to you know, fill the blank and if i go up and get in it and then you're going to want to go uh, yeah oh yeah maybe i will fill that out um oh, and the, the best way for it is saying what questions do you have not just any questions so mm -hmm we use as many open questions, which basically start with what or how. Um, use as many open questions as possible to give that person a chance to say whatever they want to say, because um, it's more inviting and it's that. Again, you'll learn what to say, but it's the how, but I think that will, that will make the difference. I would say they'll, it's that. They'll remember, they'll remember what you say or what you did, but they'll remember how you made them feel. Um, like I said, you and I have seen thousands of times where consultations have gone in a direction that easily couldn't have gone just with the way someone's looked at someone or their tone of voice or how they've come into a room. And I think that is that is the difference, essentially, the how. Um, and I think it's something we, over time, hopefully we'll be getting better at. I'll be, you know, put more stuff out there, I think as we get, as our evidence base and profession grows, not just from physio, but for musculoskeletal care and healthcare in general, hopefully it's something we can 
definitely get better at. I think it's an untapped area at the moment. You go to marketing, you go to sales, you go to other fields. It's all, they know it all. They've been doing it for years. But they're taught, we're taught how to, medical school, they're taught how to keep someone alive, essentially. <laughs> we're taught how to help people get better. So, and then so sadly, this stuff kind of gets go down and down. And yet, as we said earlier, it's actually a bit controversial. I would say your communication skills are as, if not more important than the, actually the assessment you do and the treatment you suggest. Because you, as I said earlier, you could do the best assessment, you could have the best treatment plan, but if they don't like you or trust, or believe you can help, you're going nowhere. And I know someone's gonna come back and say, well, what about your red flag questions? Which is valid. But if you don't have that trust and rapport with someone, they might not tell you the true red flag answers. If I haven't got trust and rapport with someone who's got back, back and bilateral leg pain, and I ask them about erectile function or bladder and bowel changes or sensation on there, they might not tell me the truth. They might be too embarrassed or feel, I can't, I don't want to tell them this, I don't like him, I can't trust him. And yet they should be going to A and E. Um, so uh, yeah, I think it's it is that how is critical for that for that long term management. And I completely agree. I completely agree that you know your communication has to be better, if not on par, with your clinical skills, with your hands-on skills, because if you can't talk to patients, how what are you doing? And it is such an untapped market to the point where, you know, I was looking for, you know, communication workshops or, or that type of sort of um, CPD opportunities. And luckily I found a couple, but I think we need to get you on tour, Ben, <laughs> up and down the country. I'm not sure if your, you know, your family will, will agree to this, but yeah. uh, we need to send you up and down the country because I think the work that you're doing is so important, but also being able to demonstrate those practical skills is really important and not just for you know new graduates coming out of university but for all those of us who have been in practice for a while now who you know develop habits or shortcuts that you know um don't let us sort of open up and i think those and and those are the people who need it just as much as as new grads so i'm so thankful to be able to have had this conversation with you to sure. listen to you and pick up on things and there's certainly things I'm going to steal from you and credit you I'll definitely credit you um sorry well, that, that's, that's that's why I created the, the persuading patients pages um just to get stuff out there and who knows where it will go in time but uh, you know I would I'm, I'm make myself a little commitment now if you and I speak in three years time from now, I would hope to be the, no, I'll say it. I would hope to be the, the top uh, across all of healthcare kind of communication resource. Cause there isn't, as you say, it's untapped markets, not a lot there. Um, so it's not a lot of competition. Um, <laughs> uh, and just, it's just there for, you know, to, and there'll be, oh, I'm sure there'll be videos and podcasts, who knows what. Um, I think it's, 
essentially where we need to go that that how we we know what to do but the how and the is that and the change of the beliefs and the trust and the rapport and all that it's that will make the difference and i think especially for those challenging people you know we, and i really mean by that frustration and anger we as clinicians kind of a bit of experience you kind of learn to like the kind of the upset and depressed and fearful patient because you can go oh it's going to be okay you will get there i will help you i will pick up you know, it's the opposite of the angry and frustrated and annoyed and um the ones that you go oh no oh, person who doesn't want to be in front of you and thinks you're a waste of time and i've you know they you know you're not going to help them at all they just need to see this person who's going to take out their disc or joint or whatever um those are the ones that make us go oh i really need those skills now. what do i do because there's no you know it's how you manage with them it's, you could have let's say there's no treatment plan that's going to just suddenly get them on board it's what you and how you are with them yeah yeah well i will hold you to that in three years time <laughs> i will mark yeah. the date on my phone <laughs> we could do it in person even better, even better. I like that plan. So yes, we'll make you the number one communication expert up and down the country. Oh, world. Oh, we're going to dethrone Nick Hanna if he's listening to this. Nick Hanna, you book some competition. <laughs> he's, he's, he's tapped Canada quite well, I think. <laughs> and ooh, yeah, he's everywhere now. Like his, I mean, I've told him this myself, but I'm in love with his social media marketing. Oh, yes. Right? And it's his brother who does it. And I'm just in awe of the stuff that he puts out. So, yeah, yeah. yes. Yes. It's very, it's, yeah, it's very, yeah. I, I see it at a, uh, somewhere. It's a great design. This is perfect for Instagram. Um, he knows what he's doing. Yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's 50,000 for us. It's probably more than that now. Um, yeah. But as, as you said, apart from him, I only discovered that through your podcast, to be fair. Um, outside of that, it's not a whole lot. Um, no. And I didn't know about being what a communication skills facilitator was until I stumbled across it and actually went looking for it. Um, and any physio, you and I, you could do it. Any physio could do it. Any healthcare person, a HCA could do it, I think. Um, so I would, you know, if people are interested, then don't just learn it sign up to teach it as well because that's how you learn things the best definitely and so if there are people that are sort of interested in some of the things that we've talked about today and want to sort of develop it further where can they find you either on social media or wherever okay so the twitter i have there's the by brow pt or by brow physio um i have an instagram version but it's it's not used a lot it's mostly just built um but the better thing is what i created uh three four months ago now or more uh and that is what you and i know each other from is from the persuading patients page uh and you can find that on instagram twitter or recently tiktok thanks to your suggestion i was so proud i saw your tiktok and i messaged you instantly you did uh and which has done better than instagram uh, it's you, right? I don't want to say I told you so, but... You did, you did. I called it that because if people hear, oh, you're going to communication skills training today, it's off. Oh, you can imagine that reaction is going to be. But if I say, 
oh, you're going to go into this training today how you can persuade and influence patients better. I go, mm, interesting. I think we'll find out. Absolutely. Well, I'll definitely put all that information down in the description box and the show notes so people can find you. But thank you. I just want to thank you because I've learned so much listening to your content through the webinars and through your Instagram um, and now TikTok. Um, so I'm just thankful that there are people out there like you that are demonstrating these skills, that are teaching the skills and are placing value on those skills because it's not so readily taught. Yeah, and I, well, thank you for speaking with me and thank you for your great content as well. And three years time, we're going to do this again and uh, we'll, we'll see what the future holds. Number one. Number one. <laughs> Number one. <laughs> Thanks so much, Ben. You're welcome, my friend.